Thank you, Mr. Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest in the program. He follows as he does every week on Fangraphs Audio. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note. The ubiquity of youth in contemporary baseball. Young players are responsible more now than any time in the past. Since baseball players have used gloves, responsible for a greater portion of wins in the league. There's the halcyon days of young baseball players, and they're happening right now. I force Dave Cameron to examine that issue in some depth. Also, Dexter Fowler, Andrew McCutcheon, and the influence of data on outfield positioning. The former center fielder is playing deeper than ever. The latter is playing more shallow. And both of those changes appear to have been prompted by data-driven front offices. Is there an optimal place for a center fielder to play in terms of his outfield position? Maybe, but it's just as likely that there's an optimal place for every specific player as well. We examine that. Finally, D. Gordon, PEDs, and the science of deterrence. Is an 80-day suspension for PED use. First-time offense. Is it too long or not long enough? Not surprisingly, Dave Cameron has something to say on the matter. The question of how harsh a punishment to act as a deterrent uh, is an open question, and there I think there are... Uh, there's a decent amount of literature that shows at some point the length of the punishment is no longer a factor in the person's decision. They're either going to do it or they aren't. Thoughtful comments like that one and also that precise thoughtful comment in the program to follow. What's happening right now, however, is a different sort of thoughtful comment, sort of comment one might hear from a sponsor. It's the sponsor's message. The sponsor in this case is SeatGeek. You're perhaps familiar with SeatGeek from the Internet or every one of the most recent editions of this program. I would like to tell you about SeatGeek not only because I'm contractually obligated to do so, but also because it's a legitimately useful product. Here is how it works at its core. What SeatGeek does is to aggregate tickets from multiple ticket sites and vendors. You are able to view all of the prices on one site, SeatGeek.com or the SeatGeek app, and you can set alerts for upcoming games and events so that you might be informed when ticket prices are at their lowest. SeatGeek will also assess every ticket a grade based on the quality of the seat relative to the price, essentially analyzing the value of that seat. And using 21st century technology, one is able to use SeatGeek maps to actually see the view from a hypothetical seat in which you'd be sitting. Let us not forget the best feature of SeatGeek is that unlike StubHub, for example, unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of a transaction, and you are not assessed huge fees at checkout. And for having endured the sponsor's message up to this point, listeners are treated to a $20 rebate. Here's how you claim it. You download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the Settings tab. Click Add a Promo Code. Set a Promo Code. Enter the promo code FANGRAPHS. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Just download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today or at your nearest possible convenience. That is the end of the sponsor's message. It's also the beginning of the rest of your life. What is it, Fangraphs Audio? Who does it feature? Managing Editor Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. From from my normal home, yes. Yeah. You what did you do? You go out to uh, some sort of island or coast or whatever? The, the beach, yeah, the Outer Banks. What does that mean? I see that OBX. People have OBX stickers. 
They do, because they like the Outer Banks. Right. And what, what happened? Are there wild horses there? There are. Uh, we didn't get to see them, but they do, they do live there. Okay. Yeah, the Outer Banks are basically like, um, a, a really thin stretch of land. Uh, so there's like a, a sound on one side and the ocean on the other side. Um, so in, I don't know, it might be described as like an inlet. Uh, that might be, that might be a, a term that could be correct. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, it's like, uh, you know, a bunch of beach towns. Um, and we, we stayed in one of them that was particularly dog friendly. Oh, okay. It has a reputation. Wait, yeah, the town itself has a reputation for being dog friendly. Well, it's, uh, so that, like, a lot of the beaches, uh, have leash rules, leash laws, like, if your dog, uh, your dog has to be on a leash, uh, at all times on the beach, and then they have restrictions of when you can bring dogs on the beach at all, uh, like, during the summer, uh, uh, several of the more popular beaches, like Kitty Hawk and Nags Head, uh, I believe say no dogs at all between, like, 9 a.m. and 6 p.m., uh, people only, um, but duck is, uh, year-round, Dogs all the time, no leashes required. So you can just let your dog run free, jump in the water, uh, you know, maul other people, do it, yeah. do whatever it wants to do. So it's like a, it, uh, at times it might resemble a large dog park. It's like a dog park with water and sand. Oh, that's, that's, that's nice. Yeah, and if, if you go in late April, uh, there's no one there, so you basically have the place to yourself, which is great. And the weather is what? Uh, beginning of the week, it was beautiful. Mid seventies, uh, really nice. Got up to like 78 one day. Uh, yeah. so like really perfect beach weather. The end of the week got a little chilly. Yeah. That's okay though. Yeah. We had like four or five really nice days and then a couple of indoor days. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And you watched, uh, I assume that you have uh, stayed up to the minute with, uh, baseball results. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I'm capable of checking out entirely. I wish I was. Maybe eventually I will be, but uh, as of that, I am not not yet capable of just ignoring the world. Yeah. So what do you think about this baseball, huh? Uh, it's it baseballed. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Uh, where does one begin? Where does one begin? D. Gordon getting suspended. Yeah. It's a good place, maybe. I suppose it is. It's the most. It's what probably one of the most newsworthy events to have occurred in the meantime. Yeah, probably. And yet, at the same time, Dave Cameron. You just don't want to talk about it. Well, these these stories, the PED allegations or or suspensions. In this case, not so, not so much an allegation. Less of an allegation. Yeah. Although, well, here's maybe a place to start, uh, which seems to be, I, I guess, it, um, something to be mined here, is in both cases uh, with D. Gordon and then uh, not not long ago Chris Colabello. Yeah. The players have. You, you what unilaterally maintained that they did not knowingly violate the 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 PUD policy. They all do this. I mean, like Ryan Braun, uh, I think most famously. Like, well, yeah, Ryan Braun. Like, he doubled the tripled down. Yeah. yeah, like was like this is at, and then of course like you know baseball found more evidence and he was like yeah okay I did it and <laughs> by the way I was lying when I said that the guy screwed with my sample. Uh, yeah, I mean every single person who's ever been caught uh, has said no, it wasn't me. Yeah, and then later they're like, "Yeah, okay, I was lying." Right, because it's uh, what are what are if or, uh, we do this sometimes? What, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, what are the ways in which, uh, or are there ways in which they they could not only test posit- test positive, actually have the chemicals inside them without knowing it? Yeah, I mean you can go to like GNC or one of these like weightlifting stores and buy. 
uh, over-the-counter supplements or vitamins or whatever that have uh, banned substances uh, in them, and they're legal for human beings to take. Uh, you, you know, we can, you and I could go take them, and no repercussions would come upon us. But we don't play Major League Baseball, and Major League Baseball has a list of banned substances, some of which are legal. That if you just went in and like randomly started popping pills from GNC, you could end up failing a test. Uh, all of these guys, though know the list of substances. They're given a pretty extensive education on what they can do and what they can't do. And I think they understand that it's their responsibility to know what they put inside their body. So the I didn't know uh, argument uh, fails to hold water when, you know, it's your job to know. Right. That's that's the thing. And that's interesting because they're, especially with the 80-game, 80 80-game 80, 80 suspension, first-time offense, and that's yeah. uh, without pay. Is that right? Yeah, correct. So they are incentivized not to, well, they're incentivized if they believe it's going to help their play, they're incentivized yeah. to use performance-enhancing right. drugs. Yeah. Uh, but because of this, now I think that uh, I don't know what all of the uh, studies suggest, but it seems to me that in certain cases, tougher punishments, like like legal punishments, right? Like in the real world, um, like say uh, various forms of capital punishment, right? Those do not always have. Those do not always deter crime. Correct. The the question of like how harsh a punishment uh, to act as a deterrent uh, is an open question, and there I think there are uh, there's a decent amount of literature that shows at some point the length of the punishment is no longer a factor in the person's decision. They're either going to do it or they aren't. And the difference between like a 20 year jail sentence or a 40 year jail sentence or life in prison doesn't really matter. Like to them, there's no marginal difference. Right. And so, what do we know, if anything? Or, or perhaps beyond knowing, what can we speculate about what the uh, the appropriate length of suspension for PEDs? Yeah, I mean it's it's tough to say. I mean I think we can say at this point that there is no suspension length that will deter all players from making from from using. Like there's just no magic number that you can be like, yeah, if we set it at four years, everyone will quit and no one will use anymore. Um, because I think. For one, there's a huge financial incentive just to get to the big league. So I think as we see with like a guy like Chris Colabella, right, like spent a long time in independent ball, um, got to the big leagues last year, kind of like his first real run of success, um, and made probably the first real money in his life. Like, you know, he, indie ball pays nothing. The minor leagues pay a little bit more than nothing, but not great. Uh, but being on a major league roster for three months could set you up for years. I mean, if you know, like, uh, if you can get, uh, you know, $500,000 a year for even a couple of years, you really shouldn't have to work that much again in the rest of your life. You could make enough money to... Wisely invested. Yeah, right. I mean, at that point, as long as you don't blow it and you don't go spend it on cars, you only need to be in the big leagues for a little bit of time to set yourself up financially. Um, and if you're hanging out in AAA making forty or $50,000 a year and you know that, like, one little bump gets you over to the hump to $500,000 a year, there's always going to be guys who want to make that leap. Right. Well, it, right. If you say, like, it, hypothetically... If the suspension, if the length of the suspension were four years, but then I'm not saying Chris Galbello himself, but a player in a similar situation says, "Well, I will be in the major leagues likely for zero years." Yeah, exactly. Uh, without <laughs> without any right. help. If I don't cheat, I will get no no big league time, no big league pension, no big league salary. What do I have to lose? Right. Uh, to review, what do we know about the actual benefits of what are referred to as PEDs? Yeah, we don't we don't know. Uh, exactly. We can't say like, oh yeah, if you take, uh, Andrew Steendione, you get 14% more home runs or your BABIP goes up 35 points. What I think we generally can say is that they have, 
some positive impact on strength training. Uh, that's why a lot of weightlifters take them and, you know, bodybuilders and people who are into building muscle mass. So they seem to be very effective in strength training, weightlifting um, regimens, allowing you to work out more intensely and for longer periods uh, with less rest. Um, and they also seem to help with injuries. And uh, I think that was one of the things we've seen is like when the steroid usage was seemingly at its peak in Major League Baseball, you had guys playing longer and, and having, um, you know, careers in their late 30s and early 40s that was abnormal. Uh, so it's, it seems likely that like they can help you with um, stamina and they can help you with uh, injury recovery and strength. Now, how that translates for a guy like D. Gordon is, uh, is an interesting question because he's not exactly the kind of guy you'd look at and be like, that's a dude using steroids. Right. Although, uh, I believe, I mean, uh, certainly sprinters have been caught using steroids. Yes, yeah, sure. And, uh, and speed is, uh, speed is part of D, D. Gordon's game. That's the main part. Yes, it's the main part. Although he's, uh, um, he's had a couple of very strong seasons recently. Um, I suppose speed has been part of that, but he's also, uh, he's gotten a lot of base hits, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things with Gordon is, um, you know, I think as Jeff Sullivan noted, his biggest improvement last year was actually defensively. I mean, so certainly he was, he's a better hitter now than he was a couple of years ago. Um, when he first came up with the Dodgers, he was not a very good hitter, but he was also a terrible defender. And that's when I got moved off shortstop to second base. He wasn't even going to go to second base. And his big leap forward really last year was with the glove. Uh, he also hit 330, which helps. Um, but uh, you wouldn't think that uh, PED has really helped D. Gordon's footwork improve around second base. So there are probably real parts of him improvement that had nothing to do with using steroids. And I think, you know, as far as we know, D. Gordon wasn't using last year. He didn't fail a test last year. It's, uh, I'm, I'm sure most people are going to assume that he was using and that he had a career year and then, you know, not that long, not, not that much later he was caught using steroids. Uh, but, you know, he was tested last year. If we are going to assume that he's careless enough to take something that would be a, the resulting in a positive test, uh, was he careful enough to buy some other substance last year and then was like, well, now I'm just going to be stupid to buy, uh, you know, this thing that's on the banned substance list? Or did he really get popped using the first time? We don't really know. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, you, we mentioned the case of Colabella before. The, Gordon and Colabella were in, um, well, to some degree, they're in, they're in different camps here, right? Because despite the fact that Colabella was making certainly uh, uh, considerably more than he had as an indie leaguer, he's still, of course, making the minimum, and he couldn't have even two years of service time, I wouldn't think. Oh, yeah, I think he's under one. Yeah. And then on the other hand, of course, though, we have D. Gordon, uh, who signed, what, this offseason five-year contract, five-year extension? Yeah. $50 million. Right. So Gordon had significantly more to lose. Significantly more to lose, right. And you would think that there's also some sort of security. I mean, there's some security to that. So his um, his incentives maybe are, I don't know, unless unless I suppose he was using the, uh, using before uh, he signed the extension. Yeah, I mean, that's, these are the th- kinds of questions that we, we don't know the answers to is, like, was he using all along and he continued to use because he thinks that that's how this is the substance that allowed him to be justify the $50 million investment in the first place, or – uh, you could potentially argue, and I don't know that I would agree with this, but you could at least put together a case and say perhaps the pressure of signing a $50 million deal got to him and he was uh, not confident in his own abilities to maintain that in a clean way and said, okay, I'm going to try and do something to justify the, the money that they just gave me and try and make myself an even better player and um, stepped out and did something he hadn't done before. I mean, I think people are going to be skeptical of that line of thinking, but it isn't entirely out of the realm of possibility. Here's a question. Here's a curious part of it that I feel um, 
is not addressed entirely, at least that I haven't seen addressed entirely. Um, of course, Gordon just received his suspension. Yeah. But he was notified of the positive test when? In spring training. In spring training. So there's a weird thing. Is it every time you've seen D. Gordon batting or if you were at a game, you saw him walking around or every reporter to whom he's spoken in the meantime, there's there's this – he has this information in his head yeah. that this is going on in the background. And, yeah. Uh, and I mean, yet I think the, it, suspension, the suspension is not announced until you know mid-late April. Yeah, it's interesting that Gordon was really struggling. I mean, I think he was hitting 260, uh, something like that, and not playing well. Chris Colabello was like, oh, for the season. Uh, Colabello was terrible. It's an interesting psychological question of like, if these guys know a suspension is coming, is it impacting their play on the field? Because I think we've seen, um, not just with these two, but previous players who've been caught. And it's like, man, you know, the jokes come out of like, that guy was using steroids, why weren't they helping? And uh, potentially in this, you know, kind of waiting period between when you've been notified that you failed a test and when the suspension is made public, uh, it's interesting to to consider whether that kind of knowledge of the, your, your impending doom uh, has yeah. a ne- negative impact on your own performance. It- it likely can't have a positive one. You wouldn't think that knowing, like, if I knew that, like, you know, Fangraphs was going to suspend me this summer and I was going to, like, not be able to write for three months, I cannot imagine that I would then be uh, fired up to provide my best work yeah, right. <laughs> leading up to the suspension. Right, you did, right, and you had that, that doom, you have that, that sense of doom or impending doom. It's, uh, right, it's, it's looming over you. Yeah, right. I mean, like, you have to think that this is something that weighed on both of these players, knowing this was coming. Um, and, you know, I think there's probably um, some part of them that would like to prove that they could play clean. Mm-hmm. But you're, like, if they were, if Gordon was hitting 350 when the suspension was announced, everyone would just be like, oh, well, this is why he's hitting 350, right? Like, the, the performing poorly doesn't necessarily uh, uh, cast, a, you know, a brighter light on the fact that he. Uh, might not have been using earlier, like since the start of the season, but at least it suggests that you know it, if he was using uh, after he got caught, which would be which would be silly. Obviously, if he if he failed the test in spring training and then kept on using, that would be quite stupid. Um, but you know, I think there's got to be something in Gordon's mindset, thinking like I want to prove I can play clean, uh, and perhaps that pressure causes him to perform even worse. Would um, would it be possible to design a study? Looking at the performance of players during that period, which we we knew they had been informed of their their positive test. Uh, it certainly would be possible if you had the information of when the failed test occurred, which I don't think is always made public. I don't think uh, it is always made public. It's made public sometimes. Like right. this time, they definitely said that Gordon failed the test in spring training. But Major League Baseball could certainly uh, run the test themselves. They have that data. Um, and if if they were willing to release the dates of the failed tests, then yeah, you could, you could run a study and say, well, you know, what were the projections for those players during that time, and how much did they underperform or overperform their projections mm-hmm. in the time leading up to their suspension? Um, but even if you had the results of that data, you wouldn't necessarily know whether it's like the psychological impact pulling them down, or if you had just found this is the what they are when they're not on drugs, right? Or some, or something else yeah. that we don't know, but. Uh... Um, you could at least you I mean you would at least end up with some numbers which would say this is how these sorts of players perform when they're you know waiting for their test results or the yeah I mean it would be a fascinating study if we had the information Major League Baseball please give us all the failed test dates a lot of information there 
Yeah. A lot of information. Okay, so those players, uh, well, I don't know, they've been discovered now. We know that they were using. Uh, yeah. That's, yep. <laughs> In conclusion. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think from my perspective, the probably the biggest reminder of the Gordon suspension is that we really don't know who's using and who isn't, right? Like, so like, I think Stephen A. Smith got some headlines last week or the week before when he went on ESPN and um, basically accused Jake Arrieta of using. Um, and Arietta is the kind of guy that has like historically been accused and that he wasn't good and then he is now amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the the standard lazy man's way of saying this guy's using steroids is like, you know, you came out of nowhere and you had an amazing season. Um, D. Gordon, I think, uh, may be the least likely steroid user in baseball from a physique perspective, from a, you know, guy that would have been pinpointed as like a, a potential user. Um, and so I think if, if we can take anything away from D. Gordon getting popped, it's that we have absolutely no idea who's using and who isn't. Right. Okay. And, and we also don't necessarily know what the, what the benefits are, even though they're, I mean, certainly players seem to think they're benefits. Otherwise, why would they use them? Yeah, I mean, there are some benefits, uh, certainly related to health and injury recovery and strength yeah. training. But but baseball on the field, like, D. Gordon never really hit for any power. So it seems unlikely that he was using it for those. Uh, D. Gordon probably didn't get better defensively because of steroids. Maybe it helped him, uh, I don't know, get strong enough to, like, hit the ball in the air a little bit, but he still hit the ball with the ground 60% of the time last year. Like, it's not easy to identify what exact skill D. Gordon would have gained uh, from using steroids beyond speed. Okay. And he was already pretty fast. Um, we do know, as, as you mentioned, um, players, certainly, what, the 90s and the early aughts, um, we, we saw a, an inordinate number of older players um, finding some success. Yeah. Uh, that has diminished. You wrote a post uh, for today asking uh, a simple question, I guess, is are the young players today, are these the best ones what we've ever seen, essentially? Yeah, but I think that's one of the interesting things in baseball is how dramatically the game has shifted towards young players and not just, like, you know, uh, a wave of prospects. I mean, like, you know, I guess, whatever, 15 years ago, we had A-Rod and Tejada and Nomar Garcia-Para and Derek Jeter all come up together, and this was, like, the golden age of shortstops. But it feels like right now we have like like twelve of those. Right? Like you know, when you have like uh, when Chris Bryant is like the fifth or sixth best young player in baseball, this is a pretty ridiculous crop of players. And so I kind of wanted to look and be like, look, have we ever seen this level of production from guys this young and, and this early in their career? And the data shows that no, no one has ever really seen this level of production um, from eighteen to twenty-five year olds in baseball before. Right. And your your basic methodology, uh, correct me if I'm wrong was to first find the percentage of plate appearances that players from, what, 18 to 25? Well, yeah, for all buckets. So 18 to 25, 26 to 30, 31 to 35, and then 36 plus. Right. So to find, for each bucket to find the percentage of plate appearances um, for which they were responsible, yeah. and then to find beyond that the percentage of wins above replacement for which they were responsible. Yeah, because I think you don't want to just look at, like, you know, the, you know, 1920s when they were putting up 45% of total war because they were the only players that were out there. It's like if you just are giving them more playing time, you'd expect a higher war total since it's accounting stats. So I think what we really care about is kind of production per plate appearance. Uh, so that's why we looked at the ratio between percentage of war and percentage of plate appearances. Right. And uh, what typically it's been a little bit below one, I think. Yeah, 0.9. So, like, you know, which is basically what you'd expect if teams were making rational decisions. 
you would expect the population, basically all the populations should be producing something close to the amount of war as the number of play appearances they're getting. Right. And maybe younger players, you, you could stomach slightly less production from them because you're probably also paying them less. Or because you think you're helping develop them. I mean, maybe you call up a 22-year-old and you live through his struggles like a Gregory Polanco because you think that Gregory Polanco will eventually make some adjustments and become what he is this year, or at least looks like he is this year. So you'll you'll put up with some struggles from a younger guy versus like when a 37-year-old starts to struggle. You're like, well, there's no future value here. If I don't think there's any present value, I'm not going to keep playing you. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Gregory Polanco. Brief, brief aside, one of the few players in baseball, I mean, even just, what, a month into the season, who has a, uh, a positive walk and strikeout differential. Yeah, which is pretty rare these days. Yeah, pretty rare. Pretty rare. Especially because he's got decent uh not not uh elite but decent power on contact and perhaps right. improving power on contact. Yeah. Yeah. Good job uh good job Gregory Polanco. Um so so well, first of all, one thing that you or so one thing you discovered obviously is that what what was the, the ratio the last couple of years has been right around 1.2? So that's uh, like last year it was 1.18, this year it's 1.23. And this is what the highest ever. The uh, highest it's ever been. Yeah. The highest ever since since baseball was invented, essentially. Well, I mean, if you go back to the 1880s, there's like higher numbers, but like that game wasn't. They weren't using gloves and like they didn't call balls and strikes. I mean, that was a different game. So, so I, since player since baseball since has used gloves. I mean, I don't know what year exactly they started using gloves, but yeah, like the what the <laughs> modern era is usually starts in 1901. I went with 1900 just because you know then you can say start of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, in the last 115 years, the young players have never been this productive. Right now, here you actually uh, one of the components of of this sort of uh, this metric you used to, to to demonstrate this was actually finding the the percentage of plate appearances for which 18 to 25 year olds were responsible. Yeah. Uh, we're, what, the last couple of years, it's been, I guess, about a third, a little bit less than a third. Yeah, that's um, the historical average is around 30%. Right. You know, I was not expecting there to be, uh, now, it, it's been that for a while, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, it was down even, you know, closer to 20%. In the, in the 60s and 70s, yeah. uh, there were some seasons in which, in which this age group made up, made up, uh, nearly, I mean, certainly above 40 and getting closer to 50%. Yeah, that was the expansion era. Right, and that's and you explain that, but that I guess that's not that's not necessarily the consequence that I would have expected from the expansion era. Although now it's you know like many things now that I see it, it seems like the most obvious thing. But what what happens during an expansion era? Uh, guys who were 4A players or on the cusp of the big leagues who weren't otherwise getting jobs are the most likely candidates to fill those jobs. I mean, like, if you're an expansion team, the last expansion teams we saw, what, were the Rays and Diamondbacks? Uh, they kind of filled their rosters with, oh, well, not the Diamondbacks, they kind of went the other way, but the Rays, well, they traded for Bobby Abreu and gave him a chance as a guy who was a top prospect, but that wasn't necessarily, um, uh, Someone who had um, been getting a shot, I think he was, and then they traded, and they foolishly traded him. Uh, but that was the kind of player who was like a a failed or uh, what the kind of the the fringy prospect type it was like the guy who had some hype but hadn't quite put it all together and hadn't gotten a shot. Those are the guys that expansion teams really allowed a crack into the league, and and then Abreu turned into a monster in, in Philadelphia. Um, and so I think uh, those are the guys who generally benefit the most from expansion is those guys who are just kind of hanging out on the bubble waiting for a job. Right. Well, and, and you, what you're saying is that they also happen to be between 18 to 25 years old. 
Uh, well, not necessarily, but like sometimes those guys might be mid twenties. You know, so you might have some 24, 25, 26 year olds in there. Uh, but those guys getting jobs means that those roster spots that they would have taken, uh, or, you know, like the 23 year old somewhere else has to fill in that spot. So you're, you're essentially, uh, by creating whatever, you know, in the, in the sixties, they expanded three times and then what, once or twice in the seventies. So I think they added like 10 teams in 17 years, 18 years, something like that. So you're creating 250 more roster spots and like 160 of those are for hitters. Um, you're going to end up filling those with minor leaguers more than you are keeping veterans hanging around. And why aren't there, right, I guess, why aren't there minor leaguers, why aren't there as many minor leaguers that are over 25 or over 30? Is it just because they quit? Yeah, at some point, you're, do you want to ride the bus for $50,000 a year or back then probably $20,000 a year? Uh, or $10,000 a year, whatever it was uh, yeah. back in the 60s and 70s. Like At some point, you just be like, this is not a good quality of life. Right. Yeah, so I guess I was wondering at what age. Now, on the one hand, if I suppose if you have an optimistic band of mine, you would say that they, that they were – well, this is – it's kind of a weird version of optimism versus pessimism. It's you, On the one hand, you could say they're letting their dreams die is what you could say. They're stepping away from the game. They're not holding out hope. And every year, of course, there's like a handful of players who make their debuts after their 30th birthday, right? I mean, uh, Pat Ven- Venditti. Venditti. He debuted yep. last year. He was like 29. Yeah. Uh, Junior Guerra, or Guerra, Junior Guerra. Yeah. yeah. Player who played in the Italian League and the right. Spanish League. Yeah. Uh, he played as a 30-year-old last year. I think he's actually about to have his season debut on Tuesday. Yeah. And so he obviously st- stuck around. But those were among the oldest players to debut last year. So you could say, on the one hand, you could say wh- the, the age at which the player decides his dream has died or the one at which they make a rational choice. And they yep. say, I'm an adult person and I don't want to continue riding buses. It makes me sore. And I would rather just get a job and, uh, you know, r- get a little house and uh, take up gardening. Or more likely get a job and support with the kids that I probably have at this point. Like if you get into your, you know, early 30s and you're, um, uh, you have a significant other, there's a high likelihood that your significant other might want children and would like you to provide some income to feed those children. <laughs> so at some point, if you're, you know, in double A, making not enough money to provide for your family, yeah. there's going to be some pressure applied to you to say like, maybe it's time to provide some income for your children. And, uh, right. And so that, right. So that you're, uh, your spouse or significant other also is not um, supporting everybody. And you're yeah, just, you're I think playing. at some point, like uh, uh, I, when my wife and I got married, she made more money than I did, and uh, I was writing for Pangrats in a part-time part-time role because I had left my corporate job in order to finish my degree. And she was not okay with that arrangement in perpetuity. She was okay with it for a little while, mm-hmm. but it was made clear that at some point I was expected to make money. Yeah. Did she re- did she issue an ultimatum? No, no, we didn't reach the ultimatum stage. Uh, somehow, Dave Appleman found a couple couple coins under his uh, couch cushions and and made me a job. There was a, there was the threat of an ultimatum. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. that the idea that I was allowed to mooch off of her income forever was not not going to be uh, yeah. kosher. I would like to um, I would like to mooch. You would like to find a sugar mama? Yeah, my wife's not very good at that. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's a delightful person for a lot of reasons, but she doesn't necessarily have yet, at least she hasn't developed mega earning power. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, you should tell her to work on that. Yeah. You I should issue her an ultimatum. I should, yeah, I think she would quickly take whatever is the one that allowed her to be released from her contract. 
is unfortunately yeah. how, how she, that needed, would... she needed an opt-out clause. Yeah, she, I, I guess everyone kind of has an opt-out clause in divorce, but it's a little bit – it's just like you got to get lawyers involved usually. Right. You have to bit. give up a lot of your money. Depending on which one you are, yeah. Yeah, um, right. I think uh, we should all have Scott Boris represent us before we get married. Do you think he would do uh, – he'd probably be pretty good as a, like a, a divorce attorney. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, we were talking about the play. Oh yeah, when the dream dies, or when you make the rational decision. How would you characterize it? The rational decision. The rational decision. Yeah. Because at a certain point, just probably, you probably knock. And even if you do make the major leagues, uh, well, how long do you have to be in the majors? You were talking about Colabella. How long do you have to be in the majors for it to make a difference to you? Uh, so I think like once you get added to the forty-man roster, uh, or maybe it's once you get some service time. Uh, I'm not exactly sure on the details, but at some point you qualify for a pension, uh, mm-hmm. and the Major League Player, Baseball Players Association says you're a union member. Uh, we're gonna help you out, you know, and the pension won't be huge, but it's something. It's some kind of safety net for the rest of your life. Um, is the pension the same for every player, re- regardless? I mean, as long as they've fulfilled the terms of the. I, I don't actually know. I uh, that would be an interesting question for an MLBPA person. Like, uh, I would assume that it's probably just like a set. Like, this is the pension, mm-hmm. and it's not like Social Security where it's like, yeah, David Ortiz, we're gonna you know fund your retirement. And uh, but I don't, I don't actually know. Oh, you do. You think it wouldn't necessarily apply to everyone if you've if you've crossed another higher threshold of earnings. No, I mean I think like everyone probably gets an equal. Like I think David Ortiz is probably going to get the same pension as. Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. It's not uh, commensurate you know, with your Matt Barnes or something. I think like at some point it's just like this is the pension you it's qualify to protect you from squalor. Yes, right. Like you know if you get you know if all those steroids you took cause you to need lots of therapy, we'll have you know fifty thousand dollars for you. Or I don't. I have no idea how much that is, but I think it's probably equal for all players. Yeah, uh, but I could be wildly wrong. The British philosopher, um, is he cold? Huh? <laughs> yeah, that's his name. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, escaping me at the moment. It will come though. He he argued on behalf of what he called a vagabond's wage. Okay. Which is essentially would be, you could opt into this program. You would receive. X number of dollars essentially from the government every year, but you had to also agree that you would do that you wouldn't attempt to make any other money beyond it. Right, I mean that's welfare basically, right? Yeah, but right, it's it, but you then you say, well, I'll do whatever I want, other than, otherwise, but it's not a lot of money. Essentially, it's just to keep you alive. Right. What would happen if we had that? Well, there's actually uh, an interesting economic discussion kind of uh, surrounding what they're calling like the um, basic income or minimum income, uh, sometimes called mincome, mm-hmm. um, but like basically discussions of should we replace all of these or a lot of these kind of welfare um, uh, umbrella type programs with every person in the country just getting a, a certain amount of money from the government every year. Uh, regardless of what you do, and you get it whether you work or not. So um, the idea of like a, a universal basic income would say like, look, we're we're spending forty or fifty thousand dollars a year on, uh, you know, all of these, you know, uh, earned income tax credits and and all kind of all the the welfare programs that uh, the very poor can qualify for. Is it just because of the cost of processing? Everything. I'm mean, so like the bureaucracy is uh, uh, certainly inefficient. So like uh, one of the arguments for universal basic income is you don't have to go through and like have people qualify for certain programs and show their income levels, and you don't have to have them uh, these welfare cliffs that you can reach where you're like 
if you start making a little bit of money, you actually lose money because you give up more in your, um, you know, government assistance than you do in your additional wages. Uh, so then you have a disincentive to work. Uh, so if everyone had a universal basic income, you just get rid of all that and everyone just gets some check at the beginning of the year to cover you for the rest of the year. And then whatever you do beyond that is your, your own deal. So it does remove the bureaucracy, but there's also, it's just expensive to like, um, you know, provide housing assistance and, and feeding assistance for children, like these programs are not cheap. And so one of the arguments is um, perhaps there's a more efficient uh, way of just providing everyone a check. Uh, but I think we haven't really seen that in a large scale ever, and we don't actually know what it would do to the um, incentive to work. I mean, that's the big trade-off is like, would people continue to work if they if everyone got $25,000 a year, or would a whole bunch, like 90% of the people just go buy a bunch of weed and play Nintendo all year? Yeah, well, they wouldn't be a threat, would they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, at that point, you you would be an easy country to conquer. Yeah. <laughs> this is an entire country of people playing video games and smoking weed. It would be just not dangerous. Yeah, right. It would be like invading Colorado. Not a, not a lot of resistance. Yeah. What would happen if we instituted the the minute what was it the min the mincome income or basic income? So it's yeah, called. in in Colorado at this point. Uh, I would imagine, uh, you know, I, I I don't think we actually know, but I, my guess would be that weed sales would go up. <laughs> Bertrand Russell. Is that the guy who's cold? No, that's the guy who conceived of. Because yeah, you said burr, remember? Yeah, that's right. Well, burr, I did say burr. Yes. Yeah. So that's why I is, said yeah. it was he cold. Yeah, he's cold. Yeah, Explaining he's cold. the joke. Always a good idea. That's good. The uh, Let's, uh, here, I'm going to, I'm going to name... The player is at the top of the war leaderboard because that seems, it seems Dexter like Dexter Fowler. Yeah, it seems like a good guy about whom to ask a question. Is that is that right, Dexter Fowler? It is up? Dexter Fowler. Yeah, right. I knew he got off to a great start. Yeah, he did. And uh, well, so here's one sort of thing that's interesting, right? Is the player who are first, the players who are first and also twelfth on the on the win leaderboard at this point were also among the first. I mean, two of what? The f- first three players, Matt Wieters was the third, um, to actually accept a qualifying offer from their team. Extra Fowler did not accept a qualifying offer. Oh, that it's a misnomer, isn't it? Ah, he signed with the same team. Would you, would you like to try again? He signed with the same team for how much more than the qualifying uh, offer? Less than the qualifying offer. He turned down $16 million and signed for 13 Right, but he had the, he had the, he had the, um, uh, uh, he was tied to a draft pick. Yes, he was, he had draft pick compensation attached after they offered him the qualifying offer, uh, which is one of the reasons why he didn't get a kind of offer that would have incentivized him. Oh to, man, he was really effed, huh? Yeah, he got. He, yeah, he's <laughs> the exact kind of player that the qualifying offer screws the most. Right, and then and of course in Colby Colby uh, Rasmus is the other. Colby Rasmus took one. Matt Wieters took one. Brett Anderson, I think, took one. Ah, uh, right. And Brett Anderson is not playing currently at the moment. Yeah, Brett Anderson, uh, good call. Good call for Brett Anderson, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, Dexter Fowler. Yeah. Dexter Fowler. What's that? Off to a good start. Off to a good start. Yeah. Right. And uh, do we know anything different about Dexter Fowler? Is there anything different that we can detect about Dexter Fowler than there was whatever, you know, six months ago when he was finishing up a season for the Cubs? Well, you could have talked to August Fagerstrom about this because you just had August Fagerstrom on the podcast. Yeah, we probably did talk about Dexter Fowler. Oh, and his his uh, August's kind of writing about his positioning. Yeah. Oh, yes, this is very interesting. Yeah. So 
Did you talk about this? Because I haven't listened to the podcast. No, we didn't. No, don't listen to it. Uh, but but um, <laughs> he thought he had gotten fired because you were on break. Uh, you were taking a week, and um, he had sent you that. You actually tra- forwarded the message to me, but what was not known to him is that you actually did read his message. So oh, he didn't, right. I, he, did, I didn't tell him that I was He slept him. poorly one evening because um, <laughs> he thought he was about to be fired. Well, I think I'll go pretend to fire him just for the fun of it. And what I told him is I said, I said, Eno is in much greater danger than, <laughs> right. than you are. Right. Um, but he uh, – yeah, no, right. He talked about the positioning. Dexter Fowler is essentially – he's playing deeper. Yeah, the Cubs have moved him back. Right, but we, here's a strange thing. It, it seems to me – well, it, I mean, it's uh, it's not very informative to say that these are all case-by-case bases. However, I was just hearing a broadcast the other day about – on a broadcast the other day, Andrew McCutcheon's playing more shallow, and yeah. the Pirates have him playing more shallow, and this is of some benefit to McCutcheon. Yeah, I think, like, we can't say that there's just a rule that works for everybody. Like, not everyone should just go stand in front of the wall, and, and they'll catch more balls than they used to. I think what Juan Lagares a couple years ago, like, threw out, like, 15 base runners in two months because he was playing crazy shallow, and guys were running on him because they were like, oh, yeah, it's a, you know, I can go first to third on a single to right center, except for the fact that, like, Juan Lagares was playing, like, backup second base. <laughs> it was, like, not that far away and gunned them down. Uh, and so I think, like, it really is on an individual basis playing to your own strengths. And it seems like Fowler potentially was hurting himself by playing too shallow and, and moving back might help him. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every center fielder should just take three steps back. Right. So, so there's no, uh, we're, we're going to say there's probably no hard and fast rule. It is quite possible that Dexter Fowler could benefit from playing, uh, deeper and at the same time Andrew McCutcheon could somehow benefit from playing more shallow. Yeah, I mean, I think just like you would say, you know, maybe Yasmani Tomas would would uh, benefit from swinging at fewer pitches, and I don't know, uh, Joe Maurer would benefit from swinging at more pitches. You can say like those are opposite approaches based on their disparate skills. Probably the same is true in the outfield. Is there an optimal number of pitches at which to swing? Uh, I'm sure there is. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, but, but is there? But there's not uh, an optimal place to position yourself in the outfield. Necessarily. Oh, there, there. I mean, there probably is. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> But I think that it's not going to be the same optimal place for every person, right? right. So, like, Joe Maurer should swing less than Giancarlo Stanton because Giancarlo Stanton does much more damage when he swings than Maurer does. And so if you're if you're, the benefit of swinging is reduced, then you shouldn't do it as often. If you're a guy with really good reads coming in but you just aren't very good at backpedaling or, you know, uh, turning and running, then you should probably play deeper. And so the balls don't go over your head. But, you know, some guys like Andrew Jones or Ligaris might find some value and be like, look, I'm really good at tracking balls over my head and going back on balls. So, therefore, I'm going to steal extra singles by playing in. What do we – if you were to guess, if you were to surmise, do you think that these decisions by, uh, what, the uh, Cubs and Pirates respectively, do you think these have been informed uh, either exclusively or in tandem by scouting or stat cast data? Uh, I would and, say and or stat cast data. I would say very likely to be data driven. Okay. Uh, the Pirates especially are one of the foremost teams in, in kind of, uh, relaying information to their players. Like all the teams are using data now, not necessarily to the same degree. And the Cubs are using it probably more than almost anyone else. The Pirates are up there too. These are two of the most analytical teams out there, but the Pirates probably more than anyone else have done a good job of getting their players the information in order to kind of empower them to make decisions. And I would be shocked if the Pirates positioning McCutcheon uh, shallower was not directly based on data from, you know, Dan Fox and Mike Fitzgerald and, and the guys there. 
Yeah. Speaking of this, the data in StackHouse, I've been seeing Mike Petriello. He's been on the TV. Fangraphs alumnus Mike Petriello appearing and uh, disseminating StatCast-related information. Mike is great. I'm super happy for him. He's one of my favorite people in the baseball world, and he's doing a great job at MLB.com. Congratulations, Petriello. He's a reasonable person. He's a good, level-headed dude, well-spoken, smart. You're Uh, not going to find him flying off the handle. Uh, well, maybe. Well, I, I think would, we I would like to see the etymology of that. Like Next time it. we go to New York, let's try to get him really hammered. Is he going to fly off the handle? Maybe. We can see where his handle limit is. I don't know. What does that even mean? What sort of handle are we talking about? Yeah, it's a good question. I would be, the etymology of that, that phrase would be interesting. Yes, I bet it would be. Do you think it's witch related? Uh, could be. Yeah, maybe witches are just like, uh, you know, getting really angry and falling out of the sky. Yeah. That sounds un- unlikely. All right, Dave Cameron, you've uh, fulfilled your obligation this time. Is it, we're going to end on the witch note? Yeah, we're going to end what? on the witch note. All right. Mm, okay. Uh, thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to have you back. That has been Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs.com. Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>